0: I we pray as we begin. Jesus, we ask that you will open our hearts and our ears as we look into your word. We pray, Father, uh, for your spirit um, to do a work in our hearts. I pray, Father, that you will humble my heart um, as I preach Christ. As Rod often says, um, allow me, Lord, just to be a mouthpiece for your text. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, many moons ago, uh, when I was a senior in high school, we took a high school senior trip to Europe. I was about 17 years old at the time. And so a small group of us went to France and Spain. And while in France, in Paris in particular, we visited the world-famous museum, the Louvre. Uh, And if you've been to Louvre before, uh, what's one of the famous paintings that comes to mind in the Louvre? Anyone's been to the Louvre? No? Mona Lisa. All right. Yes. Um, I wasn't much into art, especially back then, uh, but I was fairly interested in seeing the famous Mona Lisa. Uh, family, friends and family were insistent that it's the one thing I had to see at the museum. And so I wanted to see what all the excitement was about for the Mona Lisa. So I remember waiting really behind the crowds and we were all pushing uh, toward this painting, right? We're all excited. And so as I began to get closer, uh, my my, my excitement started to dwindle because I finally saw this painting in the flesh. And I was so unimpressed. And my apologies to those who love art because the one thing that that was memorable. Was this painting was really tiny? It was like thirty-one inches tall and twenty-one inches wide, and so um, I was like, "Wow, that's it!" And so, mind you, this was at the beginning of the internet era, and Google. So I never really researched the painting itself, but my reaction was, "That's it!" And so, um, I remember one of my teachers asked what I thought of the Mona Lisa. And I told them, you know what, I'm actually disappointed. Um, I'm ready to go eat some McDonald's and pizza now. So um, that's all I did in Paris, by the way. But anyways, it was, uh, it was quite a disappointment for me uh, because I thought I'd be amazed by something so spectacular, but also it shows my immaturity at the time. Uh, but in the end, again, I left pretty dissatisfied. I took a few looks at this magnificent and historic portrait, and I just left. I just walked Away. Well, if you've been with Gateway uh, during this series on Colossians, it's no secret that Paul is sort of painting this portrait of Jesus Christ. In other words, Paul is writing to his audience, all that Jesus has done, is doing, or will do, which we call indicatives, simply what Christ has done. Now, Dennis and the other preachers can correct me, but in Colossians 1, alone i counted around 28 indicatives and so just to give us a taste of what i'm referring to here just listen to the indicatives in chapter one alone i just posted a, a few in verse five it says we have a hope laid up for you in heaven in chapter one verse 14 it says we have redemption and forgiveness through his blood or through jesus In verses 19 through 26, it summarizes that we are reconciled because of Jesus' blood and sacrifice. And so all of this is really a good and beautiful portrait of Jesus. But have you ever asked yourself, why is Paul spending so much time painting this portrait of King Jesus before we get to the imperatives, to get to the practical stuff? There's a reason why he spends precious words on what Jesus has done. Well, it's been said the church in Colossae was probably being influenced in many different ways. And Paul is pretty explicit about this. Let me read Colossians 2.8 once again. It says, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. Essentially, Paul is saying there will be, if it hasn't already, things that will captivate your heart now. Paul is warning the Colossian church that the world would try to captivate the church and present a compelling reason or reasons to follow their beliefs and convictions. And so Paul is saying, look to Jesus and let him captivate your heart more and more. And so he desires that this portrait of the gospel sinks deep into their hearts and minds because he wants them to see Jesus as beautiful, the image of the invisible God, as it says back in chapter 1. And so Paul continues to paint this complete portrait of Jesus in our text today. However, maybe we're here today and just like my 17-year-old self when I viewed the Mona Lisa, we're unimpressed with Paul's portrait of Jesus. Maybe we come today knowing grace, but never really experiencing grace. And his grace is just an abstract picture to us. Or maybe, for some of us, you're here, and you're just going through the motions of life without much hope. You're living, but you don't feel alive. And you desire transformation whatever your situation is i encourage you to look at jesus once again i want us to see really paul's picture of jesus the savior who could who could only bring true transformation by his grace and so that's our theme this morning That's our aim to be alive in christ we must be transformed by his grace. Let me say that again. To be alive in Christ, we must be transformed by his grace. If it's your your desire to be alive and transformed, we must must look to Jesus again and again. And so this morning, we'll see three things. Three takeaways to be captivated by Jesus. Paul tells us to be rooted in Christ. Second, he tells us to be secured in Christ. And third, he tells us to be transformed by Christ. All that to say, let's go to our first point where Paul encouraged us to be rooted in Christ. From the start, Paul picks up where he's left off from chapter 1 and into chapter 2 and following. And really, this is a continuation from chapter 1, verse 15. Paul is saying, just as you receive Christ, continue to live in him the word walk is translated as live. And so in other words, we are to continue to walk with Jesus and in Jesus, living with really a daily recognition and dependence on him. Well, how do we do this? What's the Sunday school answer? Read your Bible and pray every day. But it's not that easy, right? I think we can all agree to that. Paul, and so... Paul mixes his metaphors here, which he often does. It says that we are to be rooted and built up, which, to put it plainly, means to reflect or to believe de- deeply in Jesus' character, his nature, his promises, and to hold fast onto the things that Scripture and the apostles have taught the church in Colossae. And one of the ways to hold fast to Jesus really is to remember and to reflect on his saving grace. When's the last time you've done that? When's the last time you've reflected and remembered um, God saving you? You know, one of my favorite times, um, really as a pastor, is during membership interviews. Um, during interviews, we get to hear people's testimonies. And so we've had people in our living room, and we have them over for hours, and they're just telling us, really their journey, on how Jesus found them. And sometimes, sometimes, um, You know, as we hear this testimony, we're just in tears because we're just hearing how stories, uh, story after story, and how people found Jesus and just just really God's providence in so, so many amazing things on their journey. And so I encourage you to reflect and to remember on his saving grace. You know, this October, it'll be five years since we moved from the Bay Area to Vienna. And my family and I remember the exact date when we moved. We moved on October 15th, 2018. And it was that day uh, we said goodbye to family and friends. We sold almost everything we, ha- we owned, took 11, suitcase, 11 suitcases with us, in addition to Thea's precious dishes, uh, all the way to Vienna. Um, so it's hard to believe it. it's been five years. But it feels really like yesterday. I mention this because every October 15th, our little family celebrates uh, the moment we move to Vienna. And so we usually um, go to like a uh, semi-fancy dinner, um, like McDonald's or something, and uh, we we eat gelato uh, as well. Uh, But every year during that time, it allows us to express the things that we're thankful for. Um, And obviously, one of those things that we're thankful for is you guys as well. Um, But we're thankful for God carrying us through many trying seasons of ministry and many personal trials. But through it all, um, we have seen God's grace. And so really, it gives us a a posture. As we reflect, it gives us a posture of thankfulness. I say this because Paul alludes to this, especially when he mentions thankfulness at the end of verse 7 of chapter 2. Let me read it again. It says, rooted and built up in him and established in faith, just as you were taught. Listen, he says this, abounding in thanksgiving. The NASB translation says this, overflowing with gratitude. You see, a posture of gratitude allows us to see God's grace more than anything. One commentary says this in reference to our text. Gratitude is a hallmark of genuine faith precisely because the heart of the gospel is God's grace. It continues, says the opposite of grace is merit. We are given something because we deserve it, like a payment for a job. But grace by its nature is not deserved. And he says this, listen, the wonder of Jesus is that everything he does for us and gives us, gives to us is an outpouring of his grace and so paul essentially wants us to see the wonder of jesus through a posture of gratitude i want us to understand that today we're not here by accident you know we could be anywhere in the world right now or we could have been born at any given period of time i mean have you ever wondered why you weren't born 900 years ago in the mountains of Timbuktu. You know, being here today, sitting in these chairs or these pews is an outpouring of grace. It's common grace. And for those who are saved, it's special grace. And this outpouring of grace is what should motivate us, motivate our love for Jesus and to be deeply rooted in him. And so Paul is saying, have a posture of thankfulness as you have received Jesus and are walking with him. There's a reason why Paul is saying this, because being deeply rooted in Jesus, it really prepares you for the storms of life. And the Apostle Paul knows better than anybody that storms will come, which takes us to our next point. We are secured in Christ. Paul gives us this great reminder that no matter what happens, we are secured in Christ. The storms that Paul alludes to here is quite clear. He refers to it starting with verse 8. It says, This see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. What Paul's talking about here is the errors being taught in the church at the time. You see, storms will come by, the way of, by, by way of false teaching. Now, let me mention it briefly. Paul doesn't say they're, they were following false teaching, but they were simply being warned of false teaching that was going on during that day. In fact, they were committed Christians firm in the faith. Paul alludes to that in verse 5. He talks about their firmness of their faith in Christ. But despite the fact that Christians at the church at the time were committed to to the truth, when Paul wrote his letter to them, they still needed to be alert about the error that was being proclaimed in their region and beyond, sometimes in the name of Christianity itself. And what was being taught then were, uh, I think you guys mentioned this, Gnostic-like heresies, um, heresies that diminished Christ to an angel whose body was only apparent but not real. And so these false teachings did not exalt Christ in any way. And so the Apostle Paul, really, what he's doing, he's affirming here that Christ, Christ is both, as the late R.C. Sproul would say, truly God and truly man. Paul knew that these false teachings would eventually lead to countless issues and countless problems within the church, Right? False teaching usually leads to division. It usually leads to isolation. It usually leads to um, relational strife. you name it. and it usually relate, um, um, it usually connects to lots of pain as well. I mean, we've seen it firsthand in Vienna, right People come in um, hurt and wounded by false teaching and so they're hurt I and mean, so a lot, of the, a lot of the times they come and they just they just want to rest at the church. Because they, they've been so downcast, they've been so, um, I would say, jaded by uh, false teaching out there or, and around the world. And so when they come into our church, they, they always say this, they say, it just feels like a breath of fresh air. And so false teachings in some ways, um, false teachings uh, could, could cause some to doubt their faith as well. Or even reject the gospel entirely. And so what does Paul do? Look at verse 10. Again, I'll read from the NASB translation because I think it captures it better. In verse 10 of Colossians chapter 2, it says, And in him you have been made complete. And in him you have been made complete. You see, Paul is saying these false teachings, they will try and take you away from Jesus. And so maybe these false teachers will make you even feel insecure, even doubt your faith. But the good news is that in him, you have been made complete. You are secured in Christ. Because in Jesus, you have everything. You know, one of my favorite songs um, is entitled, He Will Hold Me Fast. Um, the opening lyrics go like this. I'll just read it for us. I didn't put it up on the PowerPoint. But just listen here. The opening lyrics go like this. Is when I hear, when I fear, my faith will fail, Christ will hold me fast. When the tempter would prevail, He will hold me fast. I could never keep my hold through life's fearful path, for my love is often cold you must hold me fast. He will hold me fast for my Savior loves me so. He will hold me fast. Friends, today maybe this is a good reminder for us. And really, I believe this these lyrics are fleshed out through Paul's letter to the Colossian church. Because there are times, really, when we're going to feel like our faith is being tested. Maybe not through... Um, false teachings, but really through the storms of life. There are times where we'll encounter the highs and lows of this life. There will be times where we doubt the grace of God. There will be times where we even question God and His goodness. And there will be times when we feel like we are losing our grip on Jesus, especially as the storms Come, But the great reminder today we have today is found in Paul's words. In him, you have been made complete. Friends, we can never keep our hold through life's fearful path. For our love is often cold. But don't worry. Christ will hold us fast. We are secured in the arms of Jesus the head of all rule and authority. Amen and amen. And if if you thought Paul was done talking about what Jesus has done, he continues to paint this wonderful picture of the gospel, which takes us to our last point. Paul reminds us that we need to be rooted in Christ. He reminds us that we are secured in Christ. And lastly, We are reminded that those in Jesus are transformed by Christ. Paul concludes this section with reminding us that we are united with Jesus in two ways. First, Paul talks about circumcision. Now, why on earth would Paul talk about circumcision? Um, Trust me, I was asking myself this for a while. Uh, But I believe this all connects to the false teaching that was going on during that time in the church. It may seem, or in the region, it may seem like the false teachers during that time were urging the Gentile Christians to be circumcised and conform to Jewish laws. It talks about this in verse 16. And so commentaries point out that the false teachers were stressing, were stressing the obedience to the Old Testament. Where it talks about this in Genesis 17 and throughout the Old Testament in more detail and how circumcision uh, was a sign of obedience and evidence of trust in God's promises. But in the New Testament, physical circumcision was no longer necessary. And it's it's a similar controversy in the book of Galatians as well that Paul addressed. And so Paul, he wanted to be clear that physical circumcision was unnecessary for Gentile Christians. It wasn't needed. In fact, circumcision was never the primary concern for God's people in the Old Testament. It was always a matter of the heart. Moses indicates this in Deuteronomy chapter 10. I'll just read it for you. It says, And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you? But to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to keep the commandments and statutes of the Lord, which I am commanding you today for your good. Behold, to the Lord your God belong heaven and the heaven of heavens and the earth with, with all that is in it. Yet the Lord set his heart in love on your fathers and chose your of, their offspring after them, you above all peoples as you are this day. And in verse 16, this is where it talks about, now Moses says, circumcise therefore the foreskin of your heart and be no longer stu- stubborn. Going back to Colossians 2, what Paul is talking about here again, is not physical transformation but a spiritual transformation, a spiritual circumcision of the heart. And this was done by Christ, not man. Verse 11, verses 11 and 12 refer to an inward circumcision which is accomplished by our union with Christ. And really, it gives us an image of putting off the body of flesh. In other words, liberation from sin, And so the reminder Paul gives us is that the Gentile Christians were not saved by law-keeping, but redeemed through the saving work of Jesus. And so Paul, he's just painting this gospel picture as he's been doing for 40-plus verses. And so he really drives this gospel picture home now. The second metaphor Paul gives us is baptism. And he talks about another level of union with Christ here. And really, baptism is an illustration of what happens at conversion. It signifies through faith the washing away of sins, an initiation into the visible church. It's God signifying in us what only Christ can do, washing away our sins and really breathing new life into us. It's an outward sign of inward change, as it's been said. And so to summarize these two metaphors, both circumcision and baptism are all spiritual realities that represent spiritual transformation. This is all good. Amen and hallelujah. But where is Paul going with all of this? I'm glad you asked. These spiritual realities are things that we can never do ourselves. In other words, we can never achieve true transformation by our own obedience but it tells us how spiritual transformation does happen in the following verses to close this section as i said draw paul now drives his point home let me read for us just the last verses here concluding verses verses 13 through 15 and you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh god made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by, tri- by triumphing over them in him. You know, at the time, uh, Colossae w- was was under Greco-Roman rule. And so there There were, as one commentary put it, Roman subjects in Caesar's world. And so during this time, the Colossian church lived under what historians labeled uh, the Pax Romana, which in Latin means Roman peace. It was a period of over 200 years where the Roman Empire experienced relative peace and stability. And so the emperors that ruled included Augustus, uh, Tiberius, who ruled during Jesus' life and death, Claudius and Nero. Uh, and so this era really was considered the golden age of the Roman Empire. And the latter word pax or Pax has been was seen everywhere back then. They were They were seen in temple walls, city gates, official government documents, and so forth. And so it was painting really a, an image that there was peace amongst the empire and the people. In fact, the ancient coin during the, that period shows two clasped hands around a Greek staff, which reflected uh, peace and harmony. You see, but peace in the empire came at much cost. Many died during this time as well. There was exploitation and corruption on multiple levels. But those in the empire felt seemingly safe and secure. The people were at peace, but they lived in much fear. And so ultimately, the the Romans achieved their peace through military might. In fact, it was this very empire that disarmed Jesus, that stripped him naked, that shamed him, and celebrated what they thought was their triumph over him. I say all this because Paul is writing something quite compelling here. Although the Colossian church lived in Caesar's world, Paul again, again and again, is reminding them that they are Christ's followers in Christ's world. And so Paul then takes the Pax Romana and turns it inside out. He shows us how the gospel transforms the hearts to a greater peace in Jesus. And in how, it actually, in how, in how it's actually Jesus who disarmed the rulers and authorities, not by military might, but by giving his own life. You see, Jesus achieved peace through public execution of himself. Friends, true transformation and peace for the Christian comes through the cross of Christ. And so Paul reaffirms to the Colossians again and again by pointing to the portrait of grace, reminding the church that they were once spiritually dead, but Christ, through his death and resurrection, Breathe eternal life into us so that we can enjoy him forever. Well, where does this leave us? I'll close here. In some ways, um, this text um, has been speaking to me um, the past couple of weeks as I've been studying it. You know, I meet with a pastor in Vienna about twice a month for accountability. Uh, He's a seasoned pastor. We call him a pastor to pastors, um, similar to how I see Rod. Um, well, Before I left, we met, and I was telling him um, all the things that I, I was going to do in terms of you know devotions and prayer. I told him I was going to wake up every morning around 6 and 7 a.m. I was going to read my Bible. I was going to read some good books. And I was just really intent on, on these spiritual disciplines because I just wanted to rest on vacation. Um, and so he says to me, look, you know, all, all this is good, right? Disciplines are good. This, disciplines are good for everybody. It's good for the Christian life. But he says this to me. He says, look, just remember, just make sure that you see Jesus. And he says, you know, we could go through all the spiritual rhythms, but never really be close to Jesus. And he texts me, he says, look, stay close to Jesus while you're away because it's easy while you're on vacation just to get it a little bit more relaxed. And so, as I was reading this text, I was reminded of just how beautiful Jesus is. Well, the Prince of Preachers himself, Charles Spurgeon, in one of his sermons paints this beautiful picture of Jesus, which I'll close with. It'll be, I, I think I have it up there as a, as a, as a quote. It's from one of his sermons entitled, A Faithful Friend. Christ loved you before all worlds. Long before the day star cast its light upon the darkness, before any angel had stirred the unexplored heavens, before anything in creation had emerged from nothingness, God, our God, had set his heart upon all his children. Since then, has he ever faltered? Has he ever turned away, changed his mind? No. Those of you who have experienced his love and know his grace can testify that he has been a constant friend in uncertain times. And finally, he captured you with his grace. He humbled you. He made you repentant. He brought you to his feet. And he forgave you all your sins. Listen to these questions. Since then, Has he abandoned you? You may have often forsaken him, but has he ever abandoned you? You have faced numerous trials and hardships, but has he ever deserted you? Has he ever closed his heart or withheld his compassion? No, children of God. It is your solemn duty to declare no and bear witness to his faithfulness. Are you bearing witness to his faithfulness? How do you view Jesus today? Friends, we could either look at Jesus and walk away unimpressed, or we could stare deeply into his grace. The beauty and love of Christ is that he doesn't just let you walk away, he just melts your heart over and over again. We just have to learn to appreciate the portrait of Christ. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for your word. Thank you for your servant. The Apostle Paul, who wrote this, really in a time of a lot of tribulation, um, we're thankful for this portrait of Jesus. And so Lord, even with um, summer here, and a lot of us feel relaxed, and maybe some of us are on vacation mode, uh, we pray, Father, that we Mm. Um, stay closer to you that we're able to see you every day and father even times when we don't see you as we're reminded today that you will hold us fast and so we pray father that you will capture our hearts again and again every single day and that we not only see you as useful but we see you as beautiful be with us now in Jesus name, amen amen